hours after the start, I had to drop the sails, jump in, cut the net, um, and then just that whole mess around a uh, keel, which is close to four meters deep. And, and then it's going around, it's, because there's two knots of tide in the, uh, in the channel, and so you know, the, the boat's stuck to the net, which is stuck to the bottom, and, you know, and I'm cutting these nets, and it's getting stuck in the rudder, and it's getting stuck in the keel, and it's getting stuck in me, and I, I haven't got breathing apparatus, and I lose control a little bit, and there's a moment where I come to the surface um, just as the boat is, is crashing down off you know, two-foot waves, one-foot waves, but as the boat's coming down, I'm going up and it hits my head and I feel that cracking sound, but I think it's my neck and then my neck is hurting. Welcome to the Your Skipper podcast, bringing you stories from captains and industry professionals working with super yachts, charter boats, and private yachts around the world. Whether your love is sail or power, everyone's welcome here. And now your host, a super yacht captain for over 20 years who has been sailing since he was eight, Cameron Springthorpe. Today I'm chatting with Ricardo Diniz. Rick and I have been friends for over 22 years. We've sailed together on numerous boats in various locations and have worked both for and with each other. Ricardo promotes Portugal through various projects, often involving solo sailing or racing. He's one of my best friends and will definitely be back on the podcast. We've had too many adventures together to squeeze into one episode, so for now, this is an introduction to Ricardo and his career so far. So, welcome to the first Your Skipper podcast. I'm sat here with my good friend Ricardo, and we're just going to have a chat about his sailing life. And we go back a while. When was it we, we met? 95? Certainly do. May 1996. 96, oh, look at that. Great memory. May 96. So yeah, first of all, how did you start sailing? It wasn't really about the sailing. It was, um, it was about the ocean. Uh, growing up in Portugal, you're always very close to the sea and it's part of our culture to go to the beach in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to the beach all year round. I wanted to... Um, interact more with the ocean and I started uh, riding waves on my belly called body surfing and then later body boarding and then I was a lifeguard and I just wanted to do as much as possible connected with the sea but it was really in Greenwich in London of all places where uh, when I was there with my father he was a journalist at the the BBC um, he took me to to see the Katisak at the Maritime Museum and I was totally unimpressed with it because it was just a big thing I didn't really see it as a boat it was not very interesting yeah. for an eight-year-old um, and my dad was giving me a bit of history like oh this ship was once Portuguese and I was like okay okay I was just hungry and wanted to go and have lunch but then I saw a little boat next to it and I said oh what, what's this little boat and my dad said ah this is this is a very special boat it's called Gypsy Moth and it was sailed by uh, a gentleman called Sir Francis Chichester around the world and I even interviewed Chichester on one of his trips and I was like oh well tell me more and then I couldn't believe that we were able to go on board the boat and everything just seemed like, you know, like, like, like a Wendy house. It was all tiny and perfect and all the spaces were used up and there were yeah. little cupboards and little drawers. And, and I thought, wow, this is like a little, like a, like a toy. You know, I, I, I didn't want to leave the boat. And, and I was fascinated with the fact that 
somebody could live on the ocean because I always had to say goodbye in the evening and come back the next morning to the beach. And here, I realized for the first time in my life that it was possible to live on the ocean if you had a boat. And I never thought about that. And so I told my dad right then, uh, right there and then that one day I would do the same. I would become a solo sailor and probably sail around the world alone. And my dad obviously... Do you think he believed you? Well, he obviously did because he said, of course you will, son. You'll do it twice, maybe three times and let's go for lunch because you really are hungry. You know, you're saying silly things. (laughs) And that really annoyed me because I I, I was very serious about my goal, my new uh, goal. How old were you at that time? Eight. And my dad didn't take me seriously and I realized that I had to protect my dream and only re-announce it when I could have the credibility to do so because at eight years old all I knew how to do was swim and I knew I loved the ocean but I didn't know anything else and so I didn't um, mention this ever again until I was much much older but I started reading everything I could find about sailing and and other sailors and I was delighted to find that there was more crazy people not just Chichester which therefore made them not be as crazy as I thought they were so I, I just read everything I could find about other adventurers and sailors and solo sailors and so we, we both started at age eight, getting involved in the sea. Yeah, but you were really um, involved in the sea. Yeah, dinghy sailing. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, the first time I sailed a dinghy was an optimist, age 19, and obviously I promptly sank it in Lagos That was Marina. in Lagos? Yes. I remember it well. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think you sailed it under, didn't you? I, just, I did sail it under, yes, of course I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm 1 meter 92, so the, <laughs> I didn't know how to sail anything other than bigger boats. So. That was funny. Well, I was privileged to be there on that <laughs> momentous occasion. Uh, and so, so how did you get, actually, when was the first time you went sailing for real? Obviously, the dreaming about it then back in London. And then- yes. Well, um, years later, um, I became involved with sailing in Lisbon. And um, my mother then uh, remarried uh, a gentleman who was an airline pilot and who decided to to buy a sailing boat, a little sailing boat. And so a lot of our time in in the river in Lisbon and holidays in the Algarve were on board um, his little boat. It was a a Celt, and I think it was about seven meters, seven and a half meters. And it wasn't a very good experience because nobody really knew what what they were doing, and there was a lot of stress on board, and and that didn't really help. Um, But it was was my first... uh, my first sailing experiences and then obviously you meet other people and you start sailing with other people and yeah. uh, I never really stopped. So when when did you first sail offshore? It was probably along the west coast of Portugal doing a delivery probably from Lisbon to the Algarve and I say probably because once I realized that this was possible that people ask you to help them take their boats from A to B I started um being friends with all these people and always making myself available. So I'd spend a lot of the summers and the holidays taking boats to the Algarve for the owners to enjoy the holidays, but also to the north of Portugal when they had races that began in the north that then did the whole of the coast. Somebody had to deliver the boat to the start line and I would try and put myself on those crews to um, to do those deliveries. And it was a very good way to learn um, and it was a very good way to, to to experience different boats to therefore build that map of that puzzle of how boats work. And it was very reassuring after a while to realize that all the 
all the reading I had done was actually extremely useful. When I was on board, I knew a lot of the theory already, which helped me then put it to practice. Yeah. And, and you know, just realized that sailing isn't rocket science at that level, of course. And it was, it was just great to just sail up and down the coast and, and just learn so much each day. Each trip was just teaching me so so much. Yeah. Because I'd sail with somebody different on a new boat, and I was just in sponge mode, just really really learning, and that was really it. Just felt really good. Because when we met in '96, you had basically hitchhiked a ride from Southampton down to Portugal. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I signed up as a volunteer crew for something called Rally Portugal, and after many many weeks, nobody called me to be a volunteer crew. So. I I took a very uh, calculated, big, big risk, and I spent all the money I had as a student, which wasn't much at all, uh, at buying a proper uh, waterproof jacket and um, some gloves and, and some wellies. And I handed in my room key to the university, so there was no way back. And I took the ferry to Gosport, where the race would start, the, the, the rally. And I waited until all the crews got a bit drunk, and they didn't know who I was because nobody knew who each other was because they were meeting for the first time. So they didn't know that I wasn't crew. Okay. And um, so I waited until they all got a bit merry. And then I started telling them about the dangers of the Portuguese coast. And I said, so what are you going to do when you get around there? And then what are you going to do when you go into that marine? Did you know that it's very shallow there? And did you know that there's a place with extremely strong wind that comes in all of a sudden and can, you know, knock you down? And everyone started really getting around in a little, in a little circle listening like, oh, and, and, and how do you know these things? I'm like, oh, I'm Portuguese. Oh, really? Oh, that's useful. So what boat are you on? I'm like, well, actually, I'm not on any boat yet. I just came here to see if maybe I could be of use for the safety of the fleet and maybe, you know, <laughs> inform everybody on VHF as we go along of all the dangers. And they started talking between themselves and said, oh, we need to bring this Portuguese guy with us. And I was trying to be very, you know, unassuming about it. But obviously, I got a, I got a place on the biggest boat, which is called Palandra. <laughs> And it was, and being the biggest, the theory was that, you know, the idea was that I'd be in the front of the fleet and then we could communicate to the fleet what was going on with weather and any other <laughs> fishing pots or fishing boats and whatever. And it like worked, it. it worked extremely well. So, um, I was lagging away onto boats ever since. Something like that. Yes. <laughs> and, and it worked very well. It worked very well because I, I, um, uh, I threw up all the way from, um, the Solent to Plymouth and then I was throwing up all the way from Plymouth to uh, Bayona and didn't go down below one single time for the whole of Biscay. It was me and a pigeon on deck feeling sorry <laughs> for each other because I, I really, really struggled with seasickness. And, um, yeah. and I, I just didn't know how to deal with it. And unfortunately, I've, I've since discovered a few tricks, um, but I've certainly learned it the hard way. But yeah. it was a great boost of my confidence to feel that you know, everyone else I knew in sailing was just sailing around day racing in Lisbon or in the Solent. And suddenly here I was already doing a thousand miles all the way from the UK to Portugal. And by the time I arrived, even the owners of the boat said, wow, you're, you're a completely different man. You've, you know, you've learned the ropes, you're sailing and you're holding watch and we're down below quite comfortable with you on deck on your own. And it was a 52 foot boat and it felt, yeah. or 50 foot boat, I believe, and uh, an older Moody. Um, catch so it's just fantastic to have these words of of um, of support and, and praise and made me feel that I could actually achieve what I set out to achieve in the first place yeah and then um, through a happy coincidence uh, somebody that was in that race had a 
boat in the Caribbean that needed delivering across to Portugal. And a few days after arriving in, in, in Portugal, I was on my way to do my first transatlantic. So it was just a good feeling that it all connected really well. It was a good calculated risk. So what what are you doing now? Are you, are you working at sea? I mean, I know the answer to this, but um, what's, uh, yeah, tell us about your current boat or your, your current project. So ever since that, I've just always been trying to learn. And then I started looking for sponsorship to set up my own project. And that was very interesting because... It took me five years of letter writing to thousands of companies until I got the first yes. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was easy from then on. I was obviously still learning as I was doing it. Um, and um, I've had uh, lots of projects, uh, some successful, others not successful. And and that's taught me a lot. It's been very character building, like Pete Goss once said to me. You know, He says it's, it's soul destroying, but never sell your soul to sponsors and it's it's just very character building and so essentially for 22 years now i've been developing missions and and expeditions to um promote portugal and portuguese culture around the world um, using the oceans i mean we're such a, a rich country when it comes to our maritime heritage and at the same time i don't think portugal is is still you know we're still learning how to communicate our good things as a country and so I felt that I had to do something about it. And I, I've, I've put on the, the mission hat and been developing projects ever since. And then since we, I used to charter boats, um, which wasn't, most, wasn't very efficient. And so in 2011, I was able to, to buy um, our first boat, uh, which was in a not very good state in La Rochelle in, uh, in France. And, and we brought it to Portugal and we refitted her in a, in a shipyard and provided a lot of work to a lot of people. And we got a good sponsor right at the end. And um, it just allowed us to then stabilize and um, do more projects and, and keep investing in the same platform and the same vessel. Of course, it's brought um, financial uh, challenges that we didn't have before when we just hand over the boat at the end of the charter. And we would be left with nothing but also no expenses. And now... You know, the expenses are monthly and that's very challenging because not always are we able to uh, honour those, um, uh, you know, the, the, the financial sure. struggles of owning a boat. And it's not it's not like it's um, it's a 40-foot uh, Moody or something. No. T- tell us about um, this, this NF. Yeah, well, NF uh, was commissioned by um, Richard Tolkien uh, back in the early 90s to do the Vendée Globe. And so it's a very extreme boat for, for her time. And she was built with lots of uh, special ideas involved, and so she was very sophisticated. She's, she's got, she's, uh, she's cedar strip, um, or cedar, should I say? And then um, she's got uh, um, fiber and foam and and Kevlar below the waterline in case of collision. Uh, her original keel was drawing more than four meters. She was, she had a big, big rig, uh, which uh, since been reduced because it broke, and then they readapted the the spar. Um, and she had no engine, no, no anything. Um, and she didn't do the Vendée with Richard, but she did two Vendée Globes in her glorious uh, story of many, many transatlantics, many races, Route de Rams and Ostars and Transac Jacques Vabs. And so she did the first Vendée with Didier Mondutegui, uh, the Basque uh, sailor. And then his long-term preparator, Benoit, Benoit Pardieu, I believe is his name, um, he, um, he then as the preparateur sailed the boat back after it 
the two-handed Transat Jacques Fab from France to Brazil. And by the time he got back single-handed to France, everyone said, do you realize that actually counts as a qualifier for the Vendée Globe? Oh, really? Because you've just <laughs> sailed the boat solo from Brazil to France. And he, uh, Benoit Parnado said, really? Well, then I know the boat so well, probably better than anybody else. And she doesn't really need much work. I just need a little sponsor. Maybe I could do the Vendée Globe. And then he did. Oh, wow. And it was fantastic. And he did it really well. It took him about 110, 15 days or so. And it was just, he just enjoyed it. He had a great time. And he's got that kind of peaceful, hippie kind of um, manner about himself. And yeah. then he married, children, now lives in Tahiti where he's raising his family. And it was also through him that we were aw made aware of the opportunity to uh, purchase this boat and, and give it a new life because she was kind of abandoned in La Rochelle. Mm. Um, and we've been doing lots of crazy things with it ever since. And not always are we able to um, keep the boat sailing because of uh, funding. Um, so now she's in Portimao in, in, in the south of Portugal in, in the shipyard there. Um, awaiting new projects and, and, and new new funding. So, yeah, we're very fond of the boat and she's helped so many people work-wise and she's certainly allowed me to learn so much more now that it's just that boat and we keep investing in it. And I don't think in her life she's ever been as good as she is now. Well, you've certainly done quite a few projects with it now. How many times has she, I mean, crossed the Atlantic or...? With, well, with we've, we, we've, Brazil twice, isn't it? Yeah, Brazil Portugal, twice, Brazil. and um, we, we circumnavigated the Portuguese maritime region. That was her first major mission, which is to, which was to emphasize the importance of the um, just the massive size of the Portuguese Ocean, which is yeah. which is um, twenty times greater than the uh, land uh, um, dimension, yeah. and it's the eleventh greatest um, uh, maritime region in the world, and the biggest in Europe. And I just thought Portugal yeah. needs to be aware of this, and and so it took me eight years to get to the start line of that idea. And one of the reasons being that I wanted it to be a very Portuguese project, and we even had funding from Norway, Japan, but we said no, no, this only makes sense if it's a Portuguese project. So we waited until we had a proper boat and proper sponsors and we could make it as Portuguese as possible. And that ended up working out a lot better than I could have ever dreamed with being able to purchase this boat in La Rochelle and, and bring it to Portugal and save a shipyard from bankruptcy with our project. And it was just great. It worked out really well. How many days at, at sea was that? Because it was quite a long... That was quite a long trip, wasn't it? It's interesting because all the major trips we've done is always 24 days. That was 24. Then oh, my, was it really? I thought and then it was the, longer. No, and then the trip to Brazil was 24. And then the second time I went to Brazil was 24. Yeah. So I guess that's our lucky number with that boat. <laughs> but 24 days at sea on your own with a cat is quite a long, quite a long time. I mean, I, the longest I've been at sea... Um, with just one other person is with you when we cross the Atlantic. Oh, yes. It's not every day that uh, <laughs> listeners of this podcast can listen to two people who hold the most incredible um, record, which happens to be the unofficial two-handed east-to-west transatlantic on an 80-foot catch in 1998. I mean, nobody else can say that... Fastest they, crossing in an 80-foot catch. It's got to be the fastest. Two-handed. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, absolutely. So we're very proud of that record. I think that that trip deserves a whole separate podcast because I yes. mean, there was a, a lot happened and it was a lot of fun. And um, at yeah. that time, we were both 21 yeah. when we did the crossing. Yeah, working for that drug dealing. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll cover that in another in another podcast. Although we only found out we were 
<laughs> working for a drug dealer halfway across when we found those documents and yes. those pillows. <laughs> yeah, but it was a clean boat. No drugs on that trip, thankfully. No, no one takes drugs to the Caribbean. That's what we were. Yes, the basis we were working yes. on. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wanted to, to ask about your your worst time at sea, and obviously your best time as well, but your most memorable. So let's start with the worst. What do you think was the worst situation you've been in, or the the closest call that you've had? They've certainly been there's certainly been a few. And one thing I can say for sure is that some of my most amazing moments, my most beautiful moments of connection with nature, the universe, have been at sea. Some of them. But without a doubt, the worst moments of my life have been at sea. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. It does does that being at sea, doesn't it? Oh. It just gives you highs and lows, extreme highs and extreme lows. <laughs> I mean, for years it was that secret problem of mine of just being so uh, prone to seasickness and not just not understanding how I would ever get through it. Um, and um, and that was that was huge. Uh, and then. You know, I've, yeah. I've, I, I smashed into a container in 2001, and that was just, you know, very disappointing. More than the, the fright of the accident, it was just feeling like I was letting so many people down—sponsors and press and the people who'd built the boat in Pembrokeshire College in Wales in partnership with a Portuguese university—and you know, all of that just broke my heart. Um, but I have to say that perhaps. Um, um, the Biscay, the first Biscays, I was just so scared. It was, it was yeah. something I'd never seen that scale of, of energy and ocean motion. You know, it wasn't just the size of the waves. It was like how they were building over each other. And just, it was just, it just, it just felt very scary. Um, most recently uh, in the Ostar, uh, the solo transatlantic race from Plymouth to the United States, um, I had a very disappointing incident as well where we were stuck in fishing nets um, just hours after the start. I had to drop the sails, jump in, cut the net, um, and then just that whole mess around a uh, keel, which is close to four meters deep. And, and then it's going around it's, because there's two knots of tide in the, uh, in the channel. And so, you know, the, the boat's stuck to the net, which is stuck to the bottom. And, you know, and I'm cutting these nets and it's getting stuck in the rudder and it's getting stuck in the keel and it's getting stuck in me and I, I haven't got breathing apparatus and I lose control a little bit and there's a moment where I come to the surface um, just as the boat is, is crashing down off, you know, two foot waves, one foot wave. But as the boat's coming down, I'm going up and it hits my head and I feel that cracking sound, but I think it's my neck and then my neck is hurting. And I come on deck and I finally manage to release it after, you know, maybe five, six times diving. Um, and and I, I vomit a lot, and I think it's anxiety, but obviously it's 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 symptoms of concussion. And I continue sailing, and I'm I'm feeling okay and relieved with the adrenaline. And I think as the adrenaline then um, disappears over the hours, it sinks in that I'm not feeling well at all, and everything I taste is tasting of blood. Everything I eat is tasting of blood, and I realize I've got a problem. And um, and that was pretty scary because um, a big storm was coming. To date, I think it's the biggest storm on record at this time of year in the North Atlantic, which was just crazy unfortunate for the whole fleet. 
And I guess bad things happen for a good reason. I, I, I was um, advised to abandon ship and be rescued by ships and helicopters. And I had to kind of negotiate with the race uh, team and with the Coast Guard and Falmouth Coast Guard to say, look, I'll call you every hour, every three hours, every six hours, just to tell you I'm okay. And as I diverted away from the heart of this, from this storm that was arriving, um, I then sailed for seven days in this state to uh, Porto in Portugal. And I realized that it probably saved my life because I'm not sure looking at the damage of the other boats and boats were sinking and people being rescued. I think that, yeah. you know, we probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it. We may have lost the boat as well in, in, in the state that I was in. I probably wouldn't have made it through. So I yeah. was I was kind of grateful for the way things worked out. But again, it was just disappointing not to make it to the other side. Um, but that was probably, when I think about it, the riskiest situation, one of the riskiest situations I've ever been in with, with being underwater, you know, wrapped in nets. And just it just felt very, very scary. And I knew yeah. from my surfing experience, from my free diving experience that, this can go wrong so, so quickly, so easily if I'm not fully aware of what this fishing net is doing around me, you know. Sure. So that was just a bit horrible. Yeah, because, I mean, we were sat on the, um, I was part of the shore team there, and we were sat um, ashore aware of what you were what you were doing and what you were trying to achieve and everything. And, I mean, at the time, you were only, you were close to land. You were only, was it five miles off, off yeah. or even? I mean, it was yeah. close between... A lighthouse and the the mainland. Yes. Um, so not far out, and yet also completely alone. Because yep. by the time, if anything had happened, by the time we got there, it would have been far too late. And we were so. I mean, the difference. Um, you know, you're you're that close to land, and we could almost see what was happening. If it hadn't been a foggy day, we'd have probably seen what was happening. And yet, as alone there as when you'd have been in the middle of the Atlantic. So um, It's interesting you know, to see it that was, way. Yeah, we were certainly, um, you know, we were very concerned, and, and yet there was kind of not much we could do at that stage, but that's when you have to just trust that, uh, yeah, your experience and your judgment is what's going to kick in and keep you safe. I'm very safe out um, there. I mean, I, yes. I, I'll never be a competitive sailor. I, I, I just enjoy the classic races and I follow them, but... I'm never going to push hard. I'm never going to risk anything because that's not how I was taught in, in everything I've done in sailing was so much of what I did in the early stages was get this boat from A to B and you'll be paid as a delivery crew or later delivery skipper. Yeah. And so I'm all about safety, safety, safety. And that's never going to make me win a, a yacht race. And that's sure. fine. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's like when, when I learned sailing dinghies and for a while, my mum used to come down and watch, um, as we, um, as I used to go sailing off in this little eight foot dinghy, and she'd be my um, safety cover, sat on the shore without a boat and without <laughs> anything, and I'd disappear between the islands and then be back like an hour or two later. And after doing that a few times, they realised that they actually needed to just trust me to get myself out of the out of the pickle, and so um, I had to demonstrate I could right the boat from capsized, and yes. then that was it. Off you go. <laughs> we had two very different upbringings, and yet we've. We've certainly got many things in common in, in the way we see life and work and commitment and professionalism. And yeah, it's yeah. very interesting that. So you've also, apart from your sailing experience, uh, which has been a big part of your life, you've also worked on a few powerboats. What was, what was your first powerboat? 
I believe it was a an explorer custom uh, boat uh, called Lord's Warrior. I, I was on other powerboats before, but the yeah. first time working on one. It was in uh, the summer of 2005. And um, it was just very scary because um, you're, you know, you're high up in this bridge that's... In, can't, can't see the back of the boat. Can't see anything, yeah. <laughs> and I remember the first time um, taking the boat out, you know, without the um, owners on board. I had a I had a cloth with me because I was sweating so much I couldn't see. I was just, you know, cleaning the sweat <laughs> because it just felt like I was about to start World War Three or something like smash into all these boats in San Remo Marina in Italy. Um, but then obviously the more I played with the boat, the smaller she became and manageable. And then I, I couldn't believe the kind of stern two berths that we were putting her in, in yeah. Nice and things, because suddenly she became very comfortable. And that was great because it was a good family. Um, it was a good-sized boat. I think she was uh, 78 foot or something yeah. like that, 74 foot. foot. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, she was very kind, and, and the way she was uh, handling the sea, she wouldn't go very fast. And um, it was just a great opportunity to explore the Mediterranean, which I wasn't very familiar with, and... And I, I'm, I'm fascinated not only with the technology aspects and the navigation and safety, but I really enjoy serving others. I really enjoyed making special moments every day for that family. And, and um, that happened then for many other summers. And when they sold the boat on to the new owner, I was happy that they recommended me to hand to deliver to the new owner from Italy to Barcelona, but also yeah. to, to teach the new owner how to use his boat and ended up staying with him for five months, including a big refit in Italy. So I really enjoyed the human relations there and and, and the teamwork and making the boat better and improving it where possible. Um, and then I really enjoyed the refit because we had a big wish list um, that the previous family chose not to, to do, which was fine. Uh, didn't really compromise safety, but, you know, we were able to then do all these things in, in the shipyard and that was a great feeling because I she always felt like my girl you know and I'm always yeah. sometimes I go on AIS uh, on, on um, marine traffic to see where she is and yeah. you know she was just a boat that helped me learn a lot about systems and and diesel engines and generators and as things fail you learn a lot more than by textbook so sure. uh, that was really really good and it inspired me to do other things I ended up actually creating a company um, called Papillon, which was about uh, refits and, and bringing boats to Portugal to help the shipyards with more work, mm -hmm. um, which then brought um, one of our clients then uh, needed a captain. I ended up um, um, taking care of that boat for a while, which was, a, I think, a 34-meter Mayora. More uh, of a speedboat. More of a speedboat, yeah, but uh, obviously needs the same level of commitment and, and hard work. And Sure. And How many, you need like four crew or something on that was very challenging okay. because uh, the chief engineer was first season. He'd never done anything on boats. Stewardess, the same, never done anything on boats. And often it was just the three of us. Right. And um, it was just, it took a lot of planning and drawings and sitting down with the team before every single maneuver in harbor yeah. because they'd never done it before. They didn't understand the loads. They didn't understand winches. Yeah, and I, responsibility. It, it was. Yeah. And we went into a marina in Portugal, which was way too small for us. And then on the VHF, they said, oh, but because it's you, Ricardo, it's okay, you can come in. So that put a lot of pressure on <laughs> yeah. me. Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> you know, we were, everyone in the marina stood up and looked and everyone in the restaurants. And to this date, we were the biggest boat to, to go in there because we're you know, about eight meters above what 
should be the limit. Okay. And it worked well, and the owner was happy. And um, but I think that um, the whole crew was, you know, um, contributing to the maneuver with with our mind to the point that I actually think the boat actually bent slightly like a banana to make it round the curve because it's got a hairpin turn to get round there and, and you know there was a point where we, we would stretch our arm on the wing station and you could touch the wall and so I'm not quite sure how we made it in and out of there especially with the strong northerlies but it worked well perfect planning <laughs> makes a big difference and I'm, yeah. I, I'm into that and that's one of the things I love in the industry is is getting it right through good planning good teamwork and just you know just learning and, and learning with others and, and uh, I'm fascinated with the human aspect of this and then the owners I mean it's the opportunity to liaise with people that um, I wouldn't normally meet in, in my in my other life um, other than in the business world but uh, you know you're working and living with high net worth individuals who have always a lot of lessons to share and that's that's yeah. something I really I really like and, and appreciate as well. And what what uh, do you think was your most uh, memorable time at sea then? Um, positive memory. When I think of every single trip, it's not the sunsets. You know, they're top three, of course, and the dolphins. It's amazing, and, and the nature, and but it's actually all, always the human side that I remember when I think of every single project, especially my own project as a solo sailor. There's not much solo about it at all, because um, you always say we when you're talking about yourself out doing solo projects you always say we had this and we had that and yes obviously referring to the boat and yourself as well but and the team also that yeah. yeah you've always focused you've always mentioned that, that it's, it's a team project. it's a team effort to get the funding to take care of sponsors to take care of guests yeah um to you know to manage the the media side the pr side it's obviously a team effort just like a formula one driver he wouldn't be there without the team and so I love the fact that it's when I go into solo sailor mode with my projects, that's when I get my friends back <laughs> because <laughs> that's when I get to hang out with the people I really like and care about. And then my dad works with me as well and he spends more time. We spend more time together when we have a project on the production line. And it's, you know, here we are, you and me in Mallorca. Um, recording this podcast and, and last time we were together was the 29th of May at the start of the Ostar and haven't seen each other since Yeah, and that's when you were working and it's interesting I've worked for you with you and you've worked for me with me Yeah, and um, you know the times that we spend you know you're one of my favorite people in the whole wide world you know you're my best friend and the times that we get to spend more together is when you've got a project or I've got yeah. a project. We don't seem to be very social <laughs> otherwise. And so no, I it's love... Just, it's life, isn't it? Living in different countries and having yeah. different families. And, but yeah. I love the fact that when there's a sponsor and a project and off we go, it's like Mission Impossible. I pull out my human catalogue and I start selecting the humans to join the show. <laughs> and it's just, you know, off we go again and I get to hang out with people that I really care about. And other than that, I have a very it's more solo on land than it is at sea because I don't actually hang out with many people. I love people, but I don't have that many friends. And, you know, it's all about me and my children and the cats and and building the next project. So, you know, it's when there is a project on the production line that I get the most incredible moments of of being proud for the team and achieving little miracles with the time we have in the shipyard or with financial limitations. It's just fascinating, and I love that. 
Um, and that those are the real moments that I think about the most when when I think about sailing is is, is actually the people involved with those with those um, yeah with those boats. I mean, even yeah. in the Caribbean, I was I was a, a young captain in '98 '99, um, driving a day charter catamaran uh, in Saint Martin. And yes, every day had special moments, and they were good. But it's it was the human side that made it so so special. I loved that. It's all about cultivating human potential. I guess that's what I'm really, really fascinated about. Mm. Um, much more than the performance of the boat. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a very relaxed, safe sailor. Um, so if I ever go back to finish the Ostar, um, I'll probably... I, you made me promise to not let you do that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's not talk about the Ostar. <laughs> You've had the privilege, like myself, of being on so many different boats and in different situations what's your dream boat so it was amazing to sail um, Ellen MacArthur's open 60 kingfish after she'd won the route to rum and sail it from Guadeloupe back to Cowes probably one of the toughest trips in my life for many reasons um, but you know just fascinating to be on that boat that belongs to somebody I I admire so much um, and uh, uh, that was amazing um, and much of what we did on our Open 60, especially in the interior, was things I learned uh, on Kingfisher. So it's interesting right. to see how different boats influence you on other boats. Um, shortly after that, I sailed again with Alan and Alain Gautier on his Orma uh, 60-foot trimaran, a very extreme machine sailing from Portugal to Loria. And I said to Alain, you know, everything was humming. The mast was humming. The hulls were humming. We're doing 30 knots. And I'm saying, Alain this almost looks like it's mildly out of control. Like at any minute, this could just completely explode. And he looked at me very relaxed and said, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is a different philosophy of sailing than, than what I'm used to. Um, and then I sailed um, a fascinating boat. Uh, I don't remember the dimensions, but she's, you know, one of the biggest trimarans out there that held the record for the nonstop around the world solo um, and sailed that with um, a Chinese gentleman called Guo uh, Tuan, who uh, unfortunately a year later was lost at sea on a, on a Pacific record. But yeah. it was an honor to sail with him from Lisbon again to Lorient on, uh, on this boat, which I think is 100 foot, um, big red trimaran, and just, you know, enjoying plus 30 speeds again, which is just absolutely <laughs> amazing. Insane, yeah. I love multi-hulls, especially the way they're usually quite flat. Yeah, and from that experience uh, running Golden Eagle um, in St. Martin when I was about 22 or something like that um, I said you know one day I will have a catamaran it's my ideal scenario boat and here we are with an open 60 with a 4 meter keel um, but I, I actually think my ideal scenario boat is a catamaran that's big enough to you know host family and friends and guests and sponsors and press and that's can go to Antarctica uh, and, and back safely and with no major surprises. And I love the fact that it doesn't, mm. they don't have keels. You can just, you know, go right up to a beach and, you know, scrub the bottom yourself with your friends and, and off you go again. I really, really love multi-hulls and I'm, um, I wouldn't be surprised if our next boat isn't um, a nice big fat catamaran. Um, <laughs> so. I always say when, when people ask that question, like what, what boat would you have? It's, I mean, it just depends on what it's going to be for, doesn't it? Because obviously if you're going around the world with a bunch of people, it's one thing. If you're going to be living on it with your wife, it's another thing. And if, yeah, it's, 
it just and if you're going to be working on it um, as an employee then again it's another thing so yeah absolutely yeah but i, I just so really varies. like catamarans so all these different boats one thing that you would always take with you ginger ginger biscuits marmite um get that seasickness yeah not for the seasickness because i just really enjoy it now and okay and it's just uh i've got all the tricks for seasickness <laughs> now and uh you know, I was, you, you'd better share your tricks for seasickness. The way that could you. be another podcast. <laughs> well, oh, bullet well, points. Oh, just just <laughs> keep eating. Make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, or if you know, if you don't have much experience, then make sure somebody tells you what you're meant to do, so you have a plan. So it keeps your mind busy. Um, keep anxiety yeah. low. And if somebody's shouting at you, don't take it personally, and just tell them that you're not experienced and. You know, don't don't let stress engage the motion sickness, which is, I think, one of the big one of the big reasons. Yep. Uh, but above all, keep eating. And even if you're throwing it up, just keep eating. And there's a moment where you will be able to keep it down. Um, you know, stay on deck a bit if you need to, but participate. And if you need to go down and do something, do it. If you need to go down below to sleep, go down below. Don't sleep on deck like I did for the whole of the Biscay. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, soul destroying. And you just do not go into that downward spiral of, oh, I'll eat later, I'll drink later, let me just sleep a little bit longer. Yeah, It's so much harder so to recover true. from that. So just keep eating. And yeah. I was so happy to solo across the Atlantic from Portugal to Brazil in 2014 and not throw up one single time and actually have That's to remember amazing. and just say to myself, wait a minute, you wouldn't do, you weren't able to do this a few years ago. No. So I think it gets better with age as well as we get a bit more deaf. Um, I think that helps as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I know that we could talk all afternoon because we've had so many experiences together and I definitely want to cover those in other podcasts and also the things that are coming up in the future. Um, you know, I just, I know there's exciting things around the corner. So I look forward to having you back on, But but for now... Thank you for being my first recorded guest on the New York Skipper podcast. And I look forward to speaking with you again, my friend. Thank you, Cameron. Well, as you know, my father is a journalist for 53 years and, and mostly a radio journalist. So if yeah. you don't mind, I think one day um, I'll have to interview you for your podcast because you have a very, very interesting story, hugely inspiring and fascinating and um well that'd be fun yeah and i think that um there's a moment i i, I can say this mm. easily and I, i've probably said it to you before but as as somebody involved in boats there's there's a moment in my life that completely changes and that's when i meet you on that little beach in portugal and so there's a before cameron and after cameron moment in my life so i'd, I'd love <laughs> yeah. your listeners to know Definitely. about your story and i maybe maybe i'll be the one interviewing you one day yeah, I'd like to do that. Absolutely. It's definitely been a before Rick and an after Rick in my life as well. So. Great. All right. That's all for now. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Your Skipper podcast from yourskipper.co.uk. For show notes or to contact Cameron directly, please visit yourskipper.co.uk.